Good morning. My name is Moon Williams. For those of you who don't know me, my wife's with me, Angela. We have two daughters here somewhere, and you guys have been so welcoming to us this morning. Um, feels so good to be here. Um, wait a minute. We're members here, aren't we? It's been three weeks since we've been here, and guys, we have missed you so much, but it's good to be back uh, with you. We've thought about you. Our hearts have been with you. We had such a great time. It was so good. Now, the Friday before we left, I wasn't here. Work informed, or the Sunday before we left, um, I wasn't here. Work informed me that I had to work that Sunday. So I called up Andrew and I said, and this is on Friday. Andrew, listen, I've got a problem. What's the problem? I can't make it for work. And listen, the grace was, was so abundant there. So thank you, Andrew, back there for that, that measure of grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer made a statement, a very brief statement that I want to share with you and try to build on for just a moment. He stated that the life of discipleship can only be maintained as long as nothing, nothing, no no goal, no dream, no law, no piety, no possession, no person. The life of discipleship can only be maintained as long as nothing is allowed to come between Christ and ourselves. And he goes on to say, Thus the heart of the disciple must be set on Christ alone. Christ alone. Now we have all been through many different events that have led us up to this point in our lives. And those different events have defined us in their own ways. We've completed college. And so now we have a vocation that is defined by that past accomplishment. Well, then we get married. Okay, and we enter into a new realm of life where we are defined in a new way, specifically the framework of a covenant that we make with another person. Well, then we have children and things really change. And we begin to become defined by a multitude of new responsibilities and it goes on and on and on. As our careers grow, as our families grow, our responsibilities grow, and we may be wondering how it is that we manage all of this in the midst of busyness so that our hearts are set upon Christ alone. What does it mean in the midst of the life, life as we know it? What does it even mean for our hearts to be set on Christ alone? Well, Today I think that the Apostle Paul, or perhaps maybe better said, God himself wants to help us to try to define that a bit more clearly. So I want to ask you to turn your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 27 through 30, but... Today we will not go beyond verse 27 in our time together. 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life 
be worthy of the gospel. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Father, as we gather together as the people of God, as the church, Lord, we approach you and we are in need of being tightly knit together. Any ideas of independence or self-reliance, God, that we may have, would you help us to destroy that? That way of thinking, that seed that might be embedded in our heart, that leads us back to that idea of aloneness. We need your help to do that, God. So we pray that you would confront our, our minds, our hearts, and we pray along with the Apostle Paul, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give us a spirit of unity among ourselves as we follow Christ Jesus so that with one heart and mouth we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to accomplish that for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk to you this morning about the priority of the worth of the gospel. The priority of the worth of the gospel. And from that idea, I want to make two suggestions. One, the worth of the gospel leads to a thankful community. And secondly, the worth of the gospel leads to Christian unity. Okay? So let's talk about the priority of the worth of the gospel as we read verse 27. The apostle says, <clears throat> Only let your manner be worthy of the gospel of Christ, with an emphasis on that word only. You know, a lot of times when it comes to measuring the worth of something, that is oftentimes indeed in the eye of the beholder. In other words, one man's junk may very well indeed be another man's treasure. We, after I graduated from high school, I immediately joined the army, and it wasn't long until my wife and I moved to Nuremberg, Germany. Now, in Germany, every year they have an outside event called the Monsters of Rock. Now, that's where anywhere between 150,000 to 200,000 people come together and very well-named rock bands come and they perform all day long. So, I'm on the front row. Ozzy Osbourne's playing and it's chaos. Okay, people are throwing things on the stage. He's throwing things back. Somebody throws on the stage a roll of toilet paper. So Ozzy, in, its, in this chaotic fashion, he's grabbing things, he's throwing things. I'm talking like I know him, me and Ozzy. 
He picks up this roll of toilet paper and he likes into it and he's shredding it and then he throws it, lobs it out, and guess who catches it? I do. So my conversation with my friends when I get back to them after the show who weren't fortunate enough to be on the front row with me, it went something like this. Check out what I got. Dude, that's toilet paper. No, you don't get it. This isn't just toilet paper. This is Ozzy's toilet paper. Look, this is equivalent for me, a 19-year-old punk kid. This is equivalent to Elvis Presley taking a handkerchief and wiping the sweat off his brow and flicking it into the crowd. This is a big deal. This is Ozzy's toilet paper. Okay, would you put that in your jacket before we get on the U-Bahn? Because I don't want anybody to see you walking around with toilet paper. It's not toilet paper. It's your treasure. It's, it's my treasure. And as much as I wanted to make it my treasure, I wanted it to be a treasure, the reality is, yeah, it was just toilet paper when it came right down to it. <laughs> now, that old chair that I have in my den, it may look as if it came from a junkyard recently, but the fact that it housed my great-grandfather who prayed fervently for the chain of alcoholism and divorce and abuse to be broken, it changes the worth of it, and it means more than any amount of money. I may not have the right to question the worth that you place on something, regardless of how it appears to me, but in this passage that we're reading, God is speaking to us about worth. Specifically, the worth that is placed upon the gospel. And we have to recognize that when God takes the initiative and establishes something as worthy, it is not for the sake of gathering our opinion. It has as its purpose that we would conform to what God's opinion is. For example, in Isaiah 1.18, God says, Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This is not an invitation to come and exchange ideas with God in relation to what really defines sin. God, are my sins really as deep as a glaring scarlet, because I really prefer to think of them as a mauve with some scarlet tints on occasion. Reasoning with God is not about exchanging perspectives with God. Reasoning with God is for the purpose of seeing how flawed our perspectives really are so that we're oriented and prepared to receive the necessary grace in order to change. So Isaiah 1.18, for example, it is a settling of a debate, not the platform for a debate. It is God saying your sins are glaring. Your sins are as evident as an open wound, whether you would want to believe that or not. It is not disputable. It is not debatable. But it can be brought to an end by faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ as seen on the cross. Today, God is immediately reasoning with us in relation to the worth of the gospel. And that's clearly seen by the immediate language that the Apostle Paul uses in verse 27 when he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul states a priority 
only the gospel. Only the gospel. The word only comes from the Greek word monos. Now we're going to play a little game. I'm going to, to give you a word with that prefix and the, then the definition, and I want you to tell me what all of these words have in common. So let's try to figure out what this prefix really means. Monochromatic. Does anybody know what that means? It means of one color. Very good. Monocle. An eyeglass for one eye. Monogamy. It means married to one mate at a time. So what do all of these words have in common? One. You guys are geniuses. The Apostle Paul is using this prefix and he is saying there is one thing. There is one thing only. There is one thing alone. And that one thing is found in the gospel or the truths of the gospel. You see, God's care for our lives is such. God's care for His glory is such. God's care for the worth of the gospel is such that He does not allow the Apostle Paul to state some type of vague command to us and then say, okay, go figure this thing out. Go learn to live a life that has worth. That would be like me saying to my five-year-old, go out and do some chores. Okay, what's a chore? Okay, how do I do it? How do I do it well? Go figure it out. No, not at all. Paul's charge is extremely specific. And this instruction begins with a very emphatic position of a singular focus. And the Apostle Paul establishes it right at this point in this letter and everything else he says will overflow from the reality of this one thing, this one essential issue, this one bottom line when it comes to the life and the conduct of the local church. This is the sum. This is the substance. This is the circumference. This is the concentration of what God is requiring of us as a local church. And beloved, it indeed has its grand implications. The first one being, the worth of the gospel leads to a thankful community. Let's look at verse 27 together again, please. The worth of the gospel leads to a thankful community. Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. This time, let's place our emphasis on the word manner. It's a very unique word, and Paul uses it intentionally because it's a Greek word that means to be a citizen. It means to behave as a citizen. So he uses this word with great intention, and the Philippians, they can quickly identify with what it is that the Apostle Paul is trying to convey to them. They quickly make this connection because in Acts 16.12, we're told that Philippi was a Roman colony. Now what that means for them specifically is that because they were citizens of Philippi, they were able to enjoy the rights and the privilege of Rome as if... They were Roman citizens. They, they could speak the language Latin. They adopted Roman architecture. They, they adopted the Roman styles and customs of dress. As a matter of fact, in Acts 16, 
when the Apostle Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, delivers the slave girl from the spirit of divination or prediction, and her masters realize that they're no longer going to make a profit off of her, the very first thing that they do is they run to the privileges of their Roman citizenship. We see in Acts 16, 20 and 21. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. The advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The citizens of Philippi loved being identified as citizens of Rome. And the Apostle Paul strikes at the heart of their cherished identity. And if we want to be a little more specific, he strikes at the heart of the surrounding culture that they're in. He strikes at the very heart of the matters of life in relation to the culture that they are in. Now, I wonder how we feel about that. Knowing our responsibility in the midst of the culture in which we live. And in the midst of the everyday trials and problems and situations that may come our way. The week before we left to go on vacation, I hired a person to work at our business. He worked one day on Friday or Saturday. We're gone on vacation. His first day back was the Monday that we opened. So he worked one day, came to work the second day, long enough to make this huge mess and then just walk out after about an hour's worth of work. Okay, now that's not really that big of a deal. I'm kind of used to that, being in the restaurant business. But what really choked my chicken, so to speak, was when he came to my house. Okay, it's, it's the next day after he quit. He shows up and there's this big truck. It pulls up in the middle of the road. It gets out. He drives off and here comes this guy who is seemingly intoxicated, knocking on the door. I'm not home. My wife and my girls are. And he's like, Hey, I'm here to pick up my check. And I was so offended. I was so angry. I thought, what nerve does this person have to come to my house when I'm not home and ask my wife for his check when it's not even time for him to get his check? And she's like, look, we're at home. We're not at the restaurant. You need to go. You need to leave. And I immediately thought, you know what? I'll deal with that. This is something. I'll deal with that. You know what? What time is he coming to pick up his check? 7 p.m.? Okay, I'll be there, and I'll deal with that. I'm going to let him know exactly how I feel about how he had the nerve to come to my house and not even know if I'm home. Now, whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. But what I do know is that the Spirit of God immediately quickened me, spoke to me, and caused me to realize who I am. Who I really am. It's kind of like that talk that the coach has with you when you board the bus and you're going to the opposing team's turf. And he says, guys, listen, remember who we are. Remember what we're representing. It's kind of like that talk that I have with my daughters at times when they're going off to school or they're going off to a friend's house. And I'm reminding them, listen, remember who it is that you are. Remember who it is that you represent. Remember whose name it is that you're representing. How do you feel about that? 
How do you feel when you're trying to be nice and maybe earn a little extra money and you rent your house to someone and they violate you and they steal from you and they lie about you and yet you know that your main priority and your chief responsibility is to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel? How do you feel about that when you have a new infant in your home you have a full-time job, you're getting ready to start school full-time, and you know that in the midst of all of that chaos, my chief priority, the main thing, the main one thing that God is calling me to do is to remember that my that I have to live a life, I have to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. How do you feel about that when you're dealing with a, re- a rebellious child? How do you feel about that when you're dealing with everyday situations and you know that more than anything, you bear the responsibility to do this one thing, to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So for the Philippians, Paul says to them when they are tempted to delight in Roman citizenship, when they are tempted to delight in Roman customs, when they're tempted to delight in Roman laws, he reminds them, you are a part of a citizenship that is of a greater honor and a much higher level. You are a citizen of the gospel long before you are a Roman citizen. So let your conduct be an expression of the thankfulness that you have for that citizenship that Christ has established through the cross. So Paul spews out this mouthful, but I want you to know something, beloved. It is all for our benefit, and none of it is for our restriction. When I fulfill this one thing, and I do this one thing, I live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I fulfill that one main obligation, God is my present help in any time of trouble, and He causes all things to seem secondary. It's kind of like that principle found in Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then all of these things will be added to you. Paul sets the stage for a thankful community when he instructs us, only let your life be worthy of the gospel. How? How does that do that? Well, it does it because it places the emphasis and the priority on the worth of the gospel and not the worth of our lives. It places an emphasis here. It creates a context here. It creates a framework here by looking at the worth of the gospel, the worth of what Christ has done, Not by saying, okay, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and live a worthy life. No, look to the worth of what Christ has done and allow that to guide you through this thing called life. Instruction is not to shape up. It's not to do better. It's not to live a life that's worthy. We must have something much bigger than that. That is why this thing called living a manner that is worthy of the gospel, it has to be something that is completely outside of ourselves. As a matter of fact, the thought of shaping up and living a better life, listen, there is nothing that I can think of that is more contradictory to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that when we were unworthy, God came to us knowing that we could never be worthy, knowing that we could never do anything worthy of ourselves, yet He gives us worth through the worth of someone else, namely the person of Jesus Christ. And the first moment that we bypass Paul's instruction of only the gospel, it's at that point that we begin to misappropriate what true worth really is. When we begin to misappropriate worth, we are establishing such a cesspool for legalism and religion that it will be hard to contain. Listen, I'm going to tell you right now, we will begin to question the salvation of everyone who has cable TV and who is a registered Democrat if we miss for one moment Paul's intent in this passage of Scripture. And we miss Paul's intent in this passage of Scripture when we begin to look at his words. Words like manner of life, which is a reference to our conduct. Words like standing firm. Words like striving. If we miss the intent of what it is that Paul's trying to say in view of these words, these words, these phrases, they begin to become measuring rods for right and wrong behavior. They begin to be the plumb line by which we measure the way we're living and determine if we're doing things right or if we're doing things wrong rather than knowing that we can live a life of worth and we can live out the Christian life based upon what Christ has already done, not in what we are capable of doing in ourselves. So let's restate this a moment. Excuse me. A manner of life that is worthy of the gospel is a life that we live according to the worth of the death of Christ. Not the worth in ourselves. And we've got to establish that. We've got to establish that there's no worth in ourselves that we can see, that we can find, that is going to put us into the category of living a life that is worthy. So when we sacrifice or when we serve each other sacrificially in the body of Christ, it's not because that's what Christians do. When we get to a place and we're serving each other sacrificially in the body of Christ, it is because that is the only conduct that is worthy. As we consider the framework of Christ's death upon the cross and we look at the worth of how He served us and sacrificially served us through the shed blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. We forgive each other graciously. We forgive each other quickly. Not because that's what good Christians do. We forgive each other quickly. We forgive each other graciously. We forgive each other easily because that is the only conduct that is worthy as we look to the cross and see the framework of what Christ has done and how He forgave us when we were the chiefest of sinners. We don't look to ourselves and determine what it is that we have to do in order to muster up forgiveness. We look at the worth of something else. And we see the worth that Christ has established. And we live our lives according to His worth, not to what we can do. It's never going to happen that way. The worth of the Gospel is what Paul is saying that the Philippians as well as us look to and we use the worth of the Gospel to regulate our conduct 
and not the worth of the man. <clears throat> Story is told, and I've shared it before, of C.T. Studd. He was a well-known cricket player in the 1880s in England. Very wealthy man, came from a very wealthy family. He became a part of a group known as the Cambridge Seven. Him and six other men went off to China to work with Hudson Taylor in the China Inland Missions. And people are saying, what are you doing? You've got it made. You can do anything you want to do. You can be anything that you want to be. And here you go, man, trotting halfway across the globe to talk about Jesus. He gets married, and while he's away, the news comes to him that his father has died and left him a fortune on top of the wealth that he already had. So he comes back, and he retrieves the fortune. And do you know what he does with that fortune? He gives every single bit of it except for a small portion away. And the portion that he keeps, he gives to his wife. And you know what she does with it? She turns around and she gives it away. And so, what are you doing, Charles? You can be one of the wealthiest men in all of England. What in the world are you thinking? What are you doing? Giving all of your fortune away and traveling around the world to these third world poor countries talking about Jesus. What are you doing? This is what he said. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, there's the framework of worth. If God did this, it's not about what I'm going to do. It's not about I, I made myself do this. I mustered up the disposition to accomplish this. It's I'm looking to the worth of something else. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for Him. So I'm going to measure my conduct of life not on what I need to do, but on the worth of what Christ has already done. And that's how I'm going to live my life. The worth of the gospel, it also leads to Christian unity. Let's look at verse 27 again. We're going to read the whole verse. The worth of the gospel leads to Christian unity. Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving how? Side by side for the faith of the gospel or the faith that comes from the gospel. You know, when we talk about Christian unity, it can be easy to assume that Christian unity naturally exists. And we can, we can assume that because perhaps there are no conflicts that are before us. Things seem to be running smoothly. We can assume that Christian unity naturally exists because Christ has placed his stamp of approval on the local church. We can assume that Christian unity naturally exists because we're a group of born-again believers who have entered into a covenant with each other and are a part of the same local church. And yes, beloved, there is indeed a sense of unity that comes because we belong to Christ. There's a sense of unity that exists because we have covenanted together with each other. But Paul talks today about a very distinct unity 
that has to be obtained and a distinct unity that has to be maintained. You see, God has also placed the stamp of approval on the family. But in order for the family to have unity within the family unit, that requires a whole lot of premeditated work. That requires a whole lot of premeditated effort. Listen, unity is the result of something. Unity does not just happen. Unity is the result of effort. We've placed Psalm 133 before the body. We speak on it. We talk about it. We read it every Wednesday night in small group. And I believe that it is serving us oh so well. But we have to be intentional about what that one good thing is that is talked about. We have to be intentional about what that pleasant thing is. And we have to be intentional to the point that Paul is describing how intentional we really have to be when he uses words like stand firm. When he uses the word striving. Stand firm, it creates a Greek word, stiko. And it's a military term. And it means stand your ground. It means be immovable. It means hold your position on the front line and hold your position regardless of the heavy assault or the heavy attack that you are under from the enemy, from the opposition, regardless of what you do. Do this one thing. Hold, hold that front line. The word strive, it's from a Greek word, sunathlia. And we find in that word, athleo, which is where we get the English word athlete. So when we look at this language that Paul's using, when he talks about soldiers and athletes, he is intentionally using terms that suggest that we are a group of people that are in great need of each other. And when we look at Paul's illustrations and when we view those, it's real important that we view his illustrations in the context of the aggressive form of the word need. And the aggressive form of the word need is something that is required and something that is essential to life. <clears throat> I need food. I haven't eaten since breakfast. And lunch is smelling smelling really good. Smelling. See you making fun of me. That doesn't sound that urgent, does it? I need food. I've been stranded and I haven't eaten for days. There seems to be a little bit more of a sense of desperation there. That, when Paul speaks of the need for unity, he is speaking about it and encouraging us to consider it in the form of that desperate need. Because as urgent as we see the need is to have faith, faith in what? Faith in the gospel it is to that degree that we're going to begin to strive to seek unity. Why faith in the gospel? Why didn't Paul say, as he did in 2 Timothy, fight the good fight of faith and leave it at that? Why did he highlight a faith in the gospel? Well, I want to share with you why I think he highlighted a faith in the gospel. Because a faith in the gospel is the only thing that agrees with the bankruptcy of who we really are. A faith in the gospel is the only thing that highlights the boundless grace of God to deal with and deliver us from the depths of who we are as sinners. Faith in the gospel is what it's going to be to cause us to look to God to find help. 
Faith in the gospel is where we're going to find our ultimate satisfaction from the Savior. Faith in the gospel is what it's going to take in order for us to seek deliverance and to encourage each other. Because we've got a pretty relevant strike against us. And it's simply called our humanity. And A.W. Pink points it out this way. He says, The great mistake made by most of the Lord's people is in hoping to discover in themselves that which is to be found in Christ alone. You know, as we consider the words of Paul, it almost seems as if his instruction is reminding us of the high priestly prayer found in John 17. And when Jesus prayed that we would all be one. And you know, when Christ prayed that prayer, and when Paul is referring to it now, the word one, it's not only a reference to unity, but it's a reference to one being above the other. This isn't a matter of hierarchy. This is a matter of preference. This is a matter of the people of God wanting to be one and doing that by serving each other. Look at what Paul goes on to say in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 of Philippians. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. He's talking about unity. Having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And he hasn't changed his thought pattern here. He's still talking about unity. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Nothing brings the people of God together and knits them more tightly than selfless service to each other. I can't recall the times that we have went to Africa and the first thing that happens is here comes some African brother in Christ and he is wanting to do nothing but serve. Let me get this. Let me do that. You don't do nothing. Let me serve you. And I want to tell you there is not a greater act or there's nothing that is more causes us to be a little more humble than that at that moment. You know what it does? It sparks you to want to serve. When I serve you, it sparks you to want to serve me and to serve others. Okay? When we serve each other in that capacity, it fuels that idea. Now, Pat Riley, he gives us a little insight of what that might look like in a more practical way. Pat Riley was basketball coach of the L.A. Lakers from 1982 to 1990, excluding the year 1994. Or 1984, sorry. And he talks about his time of coaching Magic Johnson. Now we know that Magic Johnson is in no way a role model to be followed, but he was pretty decent on the basketball court. So Pat Riley begins to talk about his time with Magic Johnson, and he refers to, it was obvious even in his junior high years, that he was going to be a star. Because what happened was his teammates were scoring five points, he was scoring 50, and they never lost a game. But, of course, the result of that was that the parents weren't happy and neither were the teammates. So it was at that point that Magic Johnson began to develop the mindset that I'm going to work really hard to enable other people. I'm going to make other people successful on the basketball court. Two years in college, he was recruited to the NBA and immediately went to play for the Los Angeles Lakers. 
He approached the player, and, and at this time, you're talking about a lot of superstars on the team, but they're not winning any games because they're all playing for themselves. Magic Johnson approaches Brian Scott, and he says, Brian Scott, I'm going to make you the highest scorer on this team. And sure enough, he began to pass the ball to Brian Scott Moore and position him and look for ways for him to score, and very soon enough, he became the highest scorer on the team. He goes to James Worthy and he says, James, how come you've never been on the all-star team? I'm going to make you an all-star. And sure enough, he begins to sit up James Worthy and he begins to pass more and set him up more. And sure enough, it wasn't long after that, James Worthy, he got on the all-star team. He approached Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and he said, listen, who's about ready to shatter the NBA all-time scoring record, and he says, when you break that record, I want to be the man that passes the ball to you. And so sure enough, when it was that time, Magic Johnson put himself in the game. They're going, he dribbles down the court and at the right moment passes to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar who makes the shot and shatters the record. And then Pat Riley says, you'll notice in the, vid- in the video that Magic Johnson, he jumps into the arms of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He says, but if you look a little bit closer, you'll notice that there's a tear streaming down his cheek because of the excitement that he had for his fellow teammate. He was the most unselfish player that I have ever met in my entire life. Now that's quite a statement for Pat Riley to make, who's been coaching for all the years that he has. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good example of of what servanthood unity looks like in the body of Christ. We're living to serve each other by making each other look good. And maybe a more spiritual application of that would be Milton Vincent who stated this in relation to the gospel and his brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, The more I experience the gospel, the more there develops within me an affection for my fellow Christians who are also participating in the glories of the gospel. This affection for them comes loaded with confidence in their continual spiritual growth. And it becomes my pleasure to express to them this loving confidence regarding the work of God in their lives. Additionally, with the gospel proving itself to be such a boon in my own life, I realize that the greatest gift I can give to my fellow Christians is the gospel itself. Indeed, I love my fellow Christians not simply because of the gospel, but I know that I'm loving them best when I am loving them with the gospel. And I do this not merely by speaking gospel words to them, but also by living before them and generously relating to them in a gospel matter, imparting my life to them in this way. I therefore contribute to their experience of the power, the spirit, and the full assurance of the gospel. By preaching the gospel to myself each day, I nurture the bond that unites me with my brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. And I also keep myself well, versed in the raw materials with which I may actively love them in Christ. Many years ago, the true story is told of a child in an African tribe 
He wandered off into the jungle. Mother noticed that he was gone, ran frantically with some of her friends to try to find her child, couldn't find him. Came back. They they decided to put a plan together. Instead of going out single file, individually, wandering around in the jungle, they decided that they would form a line and they would hold hands and they would walk into the jungle and search for the child that way and maybe have a better chance. And that's exactly what they did. And they found the child, but the child was dead. And the mother, extremely, extremely torn with anguish and pain, she cried out and she said, if only we would have held hands earlier. And I believe that the Lord would say to us that we need to be a people who are simply holding hands. It was the Sunday before we left that I stood back here with a young man and he approached me and he said, listen, I've got some serious relevant issues in my life. And they are relevant issues in his personal life, relevant issues in his marriage. And he didn't say, would you sit down with me and have a Bible study? Can we sit down and talk about theology? I want to know about, you know, I want to know about this, this view on on Arminianism, it was nothing like that. His simple request was, listen, man, you think that maybe on your way home from work in the evenings you can give me a call and just check on me? So this is what I want to encourage you to do this morning. As Jason comes, if Jason's coming, with a baby in his arms. I want to encourage you to just take a moment and think. Are there some things on your heart, on your mind, that you need to be sharing with the people of God? You need to serve. As Jason prepares, I want you to just think, is there someone that God may be laying on your heart to talk to in this body as a step toward Christian unity? As they they play, as we sing, as we celebrate, just, I would ask you to allow the Lord to bring that person to mind and to respond to that. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful to be here. We pray and ask that you would continue to just maybe teach us, lead us, open our hearts to the need for unity, what it looks like, where it starts. Help us to be vulnerable to each other, God. And may we be a people that would seek to just trust each other. We need each other, God. And I don't know that we recognize the depth of our need for each other. So as we consider things like a relevant adversary and just everyday sin and everyday problems, God, we need each other. Help us to to recognize and see that need and respond to that need, God, ultimately for your glory. I pray that you would do that by the power of the cross and the shed blood of Christ. In your name, sing.